0: Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to the Roy Green Show ad free on Amazon Music, included with Prime.
1: This is the Roy Green Show podcast.
0: Iran in the news globally. We spoke yesterday with Tom Quiggin about the uh, the Iranian situation with the uh, Americans pulling out of that uh, out of that deal. And uh, one of the things that was brought up—that's the JCPOA deal. One of the issues that came up was that there's embarrassing silence from the progressives in North America and globally when the people of Iran rise up against their oppressive rulers. Justin Trudeau, the British government, Angela Merkel, all outspoken about uh, Trump pulling out of the Iran deal. Oh, shouldn't do that. No, we want to keep that going. But when the people of Iran rise up against their oppression as they did in January of this year nothing is said nothing the they go silent all of the leftists go silent trudeau wasn't heard from for 6 consecutive days as these people fought for their freedom it's very disturbing Nazarene Ashvin jam is a Canadian human rights activist whose family fled Iran in uh, 1979. She spoke out, and she's uh, also the wife of former Canadian foreign affairs minister, Peter McKay. And uh, Nazarene Ashwin-Jam joins us on the Roy Green Show. Thank you very much for taking the time.
2: Thank you very much for having me, Roy.
0: How, in your words, how um, embarrassing, how harmful is it that people who... Are heard from when a deal, a so-called treaty with Iran breaks down, lament the breakdown of the treaty, but when the people of Iran stand up and and, and, and fight their oppression, they go silent, the likes of Justin Trudeau. How harmful is that to the people of Iran?
2: It's very embarrassing to me as a Canadian that our own Prime Minister was silent during the time when the demonstrations were happening, both um, in the last year, when there's been massive uprisings against the regime, and the likes of Obama at the time of the 2009 um, so-called elections, I call it more selections, um, when millions of people came out on the street asking where's my vote and uh, questioning the democratic process. Um, At that time, too, people were chanting on the street, you know, Obama, are you with us or are you with them? So um, it's, it's a repeat that we're seeing over and over from some of these Western leaders. And um, it, it hurts um, the Iranian people because they're looking for support. They're looking for moral um, legitimacy. They want to know that the international community is behind them because they, they know the only solution to um, the nuclear um, deal um, to human rights um, improvement of the country and just freedom for the people is through the democratization process. And they need to hear from the people of the world that we're behind them. So it's, it's a slap in their face, and it's very disappointing, to say the least.
0: You know, one of the thoughts I had uh, yesterday when I was talking to Tom Quiggin is that with the United States pulling out of this, this so-called deal and returning sanctions, things are going to become economically more difficult again in Iran. And people will maybe see that as another opportunity or a reason or a need for them to stand up and say, you're punishing us again, and we're tired of it. We're taking to the streets again. But if they haven't been receiving support, as they didn't in January of this year, as they didn't, as you pointed out, in 2009— Maybe that will keep them from heading out into the streets because, alone, they cannot. A, they can't persuade the regime to change things, and B, they can't overpower it.
2: Yes, there's there's many things um, that I don't agree with Trump on, but when it comes to foreign policy in regards to Iran, I give him a big thumbs up. He has um, been very vocal in addressing the issues regarding Iran and their freedom and democracy, and saying that he stands in solidarity. And the U.S. We have to admit, it's the world power. It's it's the the number one stamp of approval that we really want. And I think if the Iranians understand that if if the United States is behind them, then the Iranian people might have the courage this time to stay out in the streets longer and to chant longer and to fight. Um, Yes, these sanctions will hurt. Um, temporarily, but I believe there's a price to pay when you want to achieve freedom and democracy, short-term pain for long-term gain. And that's the thing, the short-sightedness that the Western leaders have had in terms of um, maybe thinking of their own pockets and trade deals. Mm -hmm. But what they have to understand is in the long run, everybody will benefit from um, putting a putting a, a stand against the Iranian regime and anything they stand for, whether it's the deal or other things, and supporting the people.
0: Uh, do you still have family there?
2: I do. I do still have um, aunts and uncles and cousins and a lot of people.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, 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 was, it was painful to watch in, in January, very painful to watch last January. As, as, as the people, it takes a lot of courage to stand up to, uh, to, a, to a bully regime, that is not shy to use force on you, that is not shy to uh, to make you pay uh, an excessive price, in, including possibly losing your life. It takes a lot of courage to stand up and do that, and to have our leaders, quote-unquote, cower, uh, was extremely embarrassing and uh, does not augur well for a time we, ne- mean a- we may need them to stand up for us.
2: Absolutely. The people are sacrificing their lives every day. Mm-hmm. Even though we don't hear about it as much, the demonstrations continue Um, trade unions and students and uh, regular people that are not just standing up because they're feeling the pain of of the demise of the real and um, the the financial situation, but um, you see it continuing. The embers are burning, and they just need the sustained support of the international community.
0: Ms. Afshin, John, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for doing that.
2: Thank you very much.
0: All the very best to you.
1: You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. The
0: meeting that's coming up with the North Korean dictator. Mr. Trump is being suggested by more than a few people for a Nobel Peace Prize for that accomplishment. I know the Trump haters are spinning now. Stop. Stop spinning. We'll shift the axis of the world, and then we'll all be in trouble. Donald Trump has done some very good things, been very successful, in a, more, than, more than a few items in the United States, although the left continues to savage and go after him about Russia, and now $130,000 for a porn actress or actor. Can't say actress anymore. Um, But Obama giving whatever he gave, a billion, billion and a half to Iran in cash. No, that's fine. That's fine because it's the president we approve of. This is the media president, the non-media president. We're going to rip him to shreds over $130,000. It's really nobody's business. And tomorrow, the United States opens its new embassy in Jerusalem on the 70th birthday of the State of Israel. Another decision taken by U.S. President Donald Trump. And I said earlier, his domestic approval numbers, I think, are up. And then we have that uh, historic meeting with North Korea's dictator, Kim Jong un, coming up in Singapore. Meanwhile, the FBI director, former FBI director, Mueller, not the book writer, continues his search for Russian collusion with the Trump organization during the 16 uh, election campaign, and they're starting to find Hillary Clinton. I wonder what they're going to do. And the Democrats continue to shout about impeachment of, of their president, and Mr. Trump continues to describe NAFTA as the worst deal made by the United States, so... It's all very confusing to a simple mind like mine. So to so to break it all down for us is our good friend Fran Coombs, the managing editor of Rasmussen Reports, the former editor of the Washington Times, and Fran was so good to us with his time leading up to the November 2016 election, spending almost every weekend with us. I hope it didn't cost you any cause any domestic issues, Fran.
3: Well, so far so good, Roy. <laughs>
0: Thank you for taking the time. Now, what did are, what are Donald Trump's domestic approval numbers look like now compared to a year ago? Well, basically since Trump's
3: State of the Union speech, which, was, uh, as I recall, was January 30 of this year, his numbers have gone up. Uh, they consistently now are in the high 40s. He's topped out at 51 percent in our polling so far in terms of total approval. Uh, And uh, so these are better numbers than he's had since the first couple months after his inauguration.
0: So when you have 50 or 51 percent approval, what does that do for you as the president? What does that allow you to do that uh, the much lower approval numbers would not have allowed?
3: Well, for one thing, it gets any weak-kneed Republicans in the Congress uh, who are scared of Trump and actually still believe the media, uh, it gets them in
0: line to support the president. Um, speaking of media, is it the usual actors, is it MSNBC and CNN that are just vehemently anti-Trump, the New York Times, and uh, and Fox News that is more likely to be supportive of the, of the president, or has that dynamic shifted?
1: It's, it's, that
3: that dynamic is pretty much the same. I mean, I, I'm sure you've seen the same numbers that I have, surveys that show that something like 90% of the coverage of Trump is negative in the media. Uh, and even Fox sometimes surprises me that they kind of seem to follow the, uh, follow the, the Washington press corps bandwagon. Uh, but, they, I mean, it's, it's like the media in this country now lives somewhere else than where most Americans live.
0: You know what I've also heard, Fran, over the last couple of weeks particularly, is... Republicans who are, <clears throat> excuse me, in in runoffs to represent the party in November for the midterms, are starting to identify more with Donald Trump. They are they're, they're actually quite proud to say, "I'm a Donald Trump supporter." Whereas maybe six months ago, eight months ago, it would have been, "I don't want anything to do with him." Now they see the president as an asset.
3: Right, which which follows on your question about what does the higher approval numbers do uh... yes and and in fact i think also we're seeing something that i called in a recent commentary uh... a new generation of rhinos if you will that's a, a slang term here in this country uh, republicans in name only uh... and these are republican voters who are sick of the traditional republican leadership of the republican establishment these are the people that repudiated the bushes and uh, the lindsey grahams in twenty sixteen and went for uh, trump And I think we're seeing that same kind of thing in these recent primaries. Again, this this past Tuesday, uh, some of the Republican incumbent incumbent congressmen uh, fell by the wayside, and these uh, more more insurgent types like Trump uh, are are coming up as the new Republicans.
0: Fran, if you were to go across the United States today and you were to compare the attitude of Americans today... Uh, to election day of 2016, how much of a shift is there, or is, is the are the fundamentals still in place that would see Trump reelected if an election were held today? And is the situation moving now toward where he may not lose very much, if anything at all, in the midterms in November?
3: Well, I would say if things keep going in the direction they're going, particularly if he actually pulls something off with North Korea, uh, and certainly the economy keeps keeps surging. Uh, I think it's it's this election could turn out better than uh, uh, the ruling party in this case the Republicans generally get in a, in a midterm election. As you know, uh, usually two years after a presidential election, usually the party that's won uh, the presidency and won big in that election generally hit, takes a hit two years later. Uh, the Republicans may do better I think than a lot of people expect. Again, as you and I have discussed on this program many times, a lot of Trump supporters don't talk about it out loud because they don't want some idiot yelling in their face. But those people, if you if you scratch people, if you talk to them privately, uh, they're traveling more, they've got more money in the bank, their kids aren't living in the basement anymore because they have real jobs. And those are things that people vote on.
0: I read a headline the other day, and I th- can't remember what publication it was, but it was Fewer and fewer Americans can find someone in their circle of of acquaintances who's looking for a job.
3: Right. Well, and we've certainly seen that in our surveys, also. I mean, uh, I can tell you that just in, in my community and in my travels, I was I was drove down south recently with my wife for a couple of weeks. Uh, people are hiring everywhere. Uh, I mean, there are a lot of jobs out there in America, and that certainly wasn't the, tr- the case during the close of the Bush years and through most of the Obama years.
0: And how responsible is Donald Trump for this?
3: Well, I think at, at a minimum, Trump, This psych- there's been a big psychological change. I mean, it's no accident that on Election Day, as soon as it became apparent that Trump was going to win, uh, the stock market, the economy, every kind of economic indicator just you know lifted off. Uh, and we're certainly seeing we, we. On Friday, we posted our monthly consumer spending update. Again, all the numbers are up. All the numbers are way more positive than they ever were during uh, during any time during Obama's presidency. So, but then again, for those of us who share uh, some of Trump's economic beliefs, lifting the government regulation uh, off of small business, uh, cutting taxes, things like that, I think have been remarkably good for the economy.
0: Yeah, remember the uh, stock market was supposed to. Plummet the day after Trump might be elected. Wasn't right. that the prediction well, of the left?
3: Yeah, yeah. Well, that was certainly their prediction. Oh, I listen. I can recall being at a dinner party three or four days after the election uh, with some guy who worked in the State Department, and he was so gloomy because he said basically the economy is just going to spin out of control. It's just going to go down, down, down. Now that Trump's elected, and I ran into that guy recently, and he was bemoaning the fact that he had not invested very wisely
1: following <laughs> Trump's election. <laughs> You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Frank
0: Coons, Man- managing editor of Rasmussen Reports, former editor of The Washington Times. Uh, Fran, would you say, uh, you personally as an American, are you uh, pleasantly surprised at Trump's performance as president, or does has, has he left you... Uh, A little disappointment pointed? Where where do you stand on this?
3: Well, I I think, I guess my reaction, Roy, would be that um, I think like a lot of Americans, the the most unusual thing about Trump, I think, is is that he's actually doing what he campaigned on. Uh, We are so used to, I mean, you know, the original George Bush, uh, read my lips, no new taxes, within two years of his presidency he's raising taxes. Bill Clinton ran on a middle-class tax cut he did anything but cut the middle class, you know, the taxes from the middle mm-hmm. class. Uh, Obama, same thing. I mean, all these, we are, we are so used to particularly presidential candidates running on these big uh, populist, middle class uh, uh, issues and then disappointing us, basically serving their masters. And Trump uh, is doing all that he promised
0: and more. Now, when it comes to North Korea, the fact that he's going to be meeting with Kim Jong-un – what's his name? Anyway, I I know his name. Kim Jong-un. That's the one. Uh, He's going to be meeting with him in in Singapore. A few months ago, the concern was that North Korea was going to be lobbing nuclear weapons at anybody they didn't like, including the United States. And now, North Korea seems to be quite passive, whether that's an act or whether it's real. Who knows? But the fact that he, that the president of the United States is meeting with the dictator of North Korea. That's huge,
3: right? Well, face uh, it. I mean, you know this, Roy. You've been in the, you've been in this business a long time. Uh, in foreign policy, uh, bad guys take advantage of weakness, and Obama was definitely a very weak president uh, from the standpoint of foreign policy. I mean, he would draw red lines that didn't exist. Uh, nobody took the guy seriously from, from a threat standpoint. Trump is just the opposite. I mean, this is the art of the deal guy. I'm sure a lot of this was bluster, but nevertheless, you know, he flew stealth bombers over North Korea. Uh, he, he stepped up naval activity around North Korea. This guy, he, you know, President Trump made it very clear to this guy, keep running your mouth, and it may have bad consequences for you. Uh, I'm sure also Trump talked with the Chinese behind the scenes. Uh, he's been pressuring the Chinese, as you know, economically. Uh, I think all of these things came together uh, to make Kim Jong un think it's a good idea to go to the table.
0: Mm-hmm. Where's the Mueller probe going?
3: <sighs> who knows? I mean, next thing you know, they're going to be indicting my dog. You know, I mean, <laughs> who knows? I mean, it, they it, they seem to be so lost. Uh, and I think it shows you how desperate the Democrats are that when they filed that lawsuit a couple weeks ago against the Republicans. Uh, over over the whole Russia thing. They realize that Mueller's not going to deliver for them, so now they have to try to keep it alive somehow by t- dragging it into the courts for a couple of years.
0: And uh, is Stormy Daniels really worth talking about?
3: Well, again, if you're a liberal Democrat or a, n- a never-Trumper, it's probably the most important thing in your life. But I think to the average person, uh, the fact that Trump had sex with a hooker 12 years ago is probably not an overriding concern in their day-to-day life.
0: Mm -hmm. And the impeachment uh, um, uh, effort, is that going anywhere? You know, I think not. Again,
3: Roy, I mean, even as you know, again, the prominent Democrats are coming out saying, don't do it, don't do it. And we did. We asked voters a couple weeks ago, uh, what's a better strategy uh, for the Democrats in the upcoming elections to focus on impeachment or to focus on impeachment? other issues. And 70% of people said other issues. So, I mean, really, it's the diehards uh, that are counting on impeachment.
0: Yeah. The people who were looking for safe spaces in November of 2016. Yeah. And people yeah. also that can't win elections.
3: So, <laughs> therefore, they have to go to you know extrajudicial means, if you will, to try to win, a, to try to, quote, win, and quote, an election.
0: Yeah. Fran, thank you for today. Thanks uh, for all the time you've given us. Always a pleasure, Roy. All the best. Fran Coombs, managing editor, Of Rasmussen Reports, former editor of the Washington Times, spent more than 30 years as a newspaper editor in in, uh, Washington, D.C., all
1: right. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900-CHML. Mike
0: Pompeo from Global News. Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State, United States, said Washington will agree to lift sanctions on North Korea if the country agrees to completely dismantle its nuclear weapons program. Meanwhile, sanctions have been returned on Iran. So you can see the smart business move, this is. And it's also going to help the people of North Korea, who have been starving and suffering tremendously under their despotic leader. So if Kim Jong-un does away with his nuclear program completely then the United States will agree to lift all the sanctions on the country. Smart move. Uh, I read a column. First of all, I have to say this. I'm a big fan of Tristan Hopper, who writes for the National Post. And he called out the myth that Western Canada would be richer if, quote, we only refined our own oil, end quote. And uh, Tristan's column that I read uh, the day before yesterday was why Canada shouldn't refine the oil it exports. And it points to the fallacies of that position, including since 1970, only one refinery has been built in Western Canada. And that one is kind of a boondoggle. Tristan Hopper joins us on the Roy Green Show. Tristan, thank you so much for taking the time. Anytime. Thank you. So, uh, Mr. Horgan, the Premier of British Columbia... Has had the violin out and was playing the old familiar refrain. If only we refined our own gas or our own oil, then our gas would be cheaper. What's the fallacy there?
4: Yeah, and this is uh, this is very popular uh, across Western Canada and probably all of Canada. Uh, this belief that uh, we're basically just you know letting our resources be fleeced from us by foreign producers. And then we're not making any money out of it. And if we were really smart, uh, we would add more value to those products domestically. Now, this isn't just an NDP thing. I mean, every side of the political spectrum has followed this myth. Uh, But that's what it is. It is a myth. Um, I mean, the number one thing overarching all of it is that uh, the assertion is that there's money to be made from oil that we're foolishly just letting slip through our fingers. Now, I live in Alberta. Um, I've I've met a lot of oil executives you can accuse oil executives of a lot of things but failing to make money isn't one of them so that's just the one thing overarching all of this Um, you're essentially assuming that the oil industry is so stupid uh, that they're just (laughs) letting billions of dollars uh, leave our borders if we if we would make billions more dollars by refining all the oil here uh seems like something they would have done by now, but I've got more numbers uh, beyond that, but uh, that, that's sort of the, the number one reason why you know this is a bit of a fallacy.
0: Now, you also write in your column, even our existing refineries aren't running at full capacity.
4: That's right. So uh, last year, uh, it was around 84%. Uh, now, they're not supposed to be 100%. There are shutdowns. You've got to switch from winter to summer gas, et cetera. but uh, usually they're around uh, 95%. So that's 9%. Uh, a gap between what our refineries are running at and what they could be running at and compare that to the United States where their refineries are running at 91%. Uh, So, obviously, if this was a red-hot market for refined products and we were just, you know, raking in the cash by uh, refining our oil, it seems uh, to follow that our refineries would already be running full tilt instead of kind of being a little sluggish and certainly behind the Americans.
5: Yeah,
4: and you
0: know, we have refineries in eastern Canada, but Energy East, the pipeline, was stopped in Quebec, so we can't even get our oil to our own refineries. We have to bring 700,000 barrels a day in to keep those refineries busy.
4: That's right. And, and I guess there is some dispute on whether uh, Energy East would have supplied uh, refineries uh, because it, it, it's heavy oil coming through that, that pipeline, and I don't know if a lot of these that's true, yeah, are yeah. rigged up for that. So it's a, there's still a possibility that it could have been an expert pipeline. But uh, it, it, that's another fact that I don't think a lot of Canadians know is that uh I mean, usually when you're saying we should refine the oil here, people have this vision that almost all of our oil is going to the Americans, they turn it into gas, and then sell it back to us at a premium. We're such suckers. Uh, but when you actually look at the export numbers, which is maintained by the government of Canada, uh, we export uh, 2.5 million cubic liters uh, of refined products per year, and we only import 1.5 million cubic liters. So we're, we're ahead of the Americans. So, yes, we are burning a lot of gas that is refined by Americans, but the Americans are burning way more gas that is refined by us first. So we do have a relatively robust uh, domestic refinery industry, uh, which again, um, if it made sense to expand that industry, uh, it seems like something we w- would have done already.
0: And we should have done uh, quite some time ago, I, I, I would surmise, simply because we don't have a massive population and we could easily take care of all our all of our, uh, res- uh, not responsibilities, but requirements uh, as far as o- getting the oil out of the ground is concerned and then refining it. We we could have gotten that done a long time ago if it had been done properly.
4: Well, technically we can, uh, since we are uh, a a sort of net exporter uh, of refined products. So if you look at all the refinery capacity across Canada, uh, yes, we can absolutely uh, already refine well more refined products than we need here domestically. Now, the problem is geography. Uh, If you've looked at a map lately, uh, we are a one-dimensional country splayed along a 6,400-kilometer border with the United States. So that's where... You get this weird situation where we're simultaneously uh, importing and exporting fuel. So in Western Canada, um, basically all of the gas stations from Vancouver all the way to Edmonton uh, and Calgary, all of that is refined locally. And then maybe that'll start to slow down. uh, Maybe in Northern Ontario in parts, you're you're using more American gas. But on the whole, in the aggregate, uh, we've got way more refineries. Our refinery capacity is quite high, uh, so so much compared to other countries.
0: So so much for Mr. Oregon's argument.
4: Uh, that he should increase refinery. So yeah, if you look at the economics uh, in the piece, um, just looking at we already have refinery capacity. Uh, it's 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 very unlikely that we would build a refinery that could make because that's the thing you're gonna you're gonna refine a bunch of gasoline. People still have to buy it. Now the people currently buying our oil. It's not like you go to the ports and say oh you were gonna fill up this tanker full of oil for your refineries. But here's the thing. How about you just fill up with our super expensive gasoline because it's still Canada? There's Canadian land prices, there's Canadian labor costs. It's very expensive gasoline. Most places, China, the United States, are going to say, Well, no, we were actually looking to buy oil for our refineries. We're not suddenly going to turn around and buy another product. It's like when you go to the store and you're looking to buy some flowers, and they say, Well, how about you buy this? Uh, Sorry, some flour, uh, wheat flour. um, And they turn around and say, Well, how about buy these artisanal crackers? You say, Well, I was coming to get the wheat flour in the first place. (laughs) So uh, most likely, it's strange to hear John Horgan and the Green Party pushing the idea of more refinery cap- capability. The reason they're doing it uh, is because if you fill a tanker full of uh, gasoline, it's safer for the environment than oil. Um, you know, it, it sort of floats better on the surface. It's easier to clean up. I get that. But most likely, if you look at the economics of the situation, if you were to expand refinery capability, you're going to be creating a bunch of gasoline and diesel that nobody wants to buy. So I struggle to think of something worse for the environment than a multi-billion dollar facility um, that is basically doomed and creates gas and uh, diesel that nobody wants.
0: Well, you explain that so well in the section of the uh, column. The people buying our oil generally aren't interested in our gas and diesel.
4: That's right. Uh, so most of our oil is being consumed by the United States. So um, I mean, the tricky thing here is we are uh, sharing. We are sharing a border with the United States, who are they? Are the world's largest refiner of oil, and they're the most experienced at doing it. So they have you know hundreds of refineries that they paid the mortgages on long time ago. Uh, they can, in most cases, there's a few very choice exceptions, but for the most most part uh they can make gasoline and diesel way cheaper than we can so that's the thing we build a refinery here in canada uh we we get it we crank it up and then the per liter cost of the diesel we create uh we, you can't hold the candle to the per liter uh, per liter cost of the diesel they're creating in the united states so we we still have to compete uh with the stuff that they create and they're just pretty good at doing it and again um, the only way we're going to suddenly uh, expand this new market for canadian gas and diesel is if we sell it at a competitive price and there's been analysis of this, just how can we extract more value out of our oil and the conclusion is, eh, maybe there's a few geographic places where you could slightly expand the amount of Canadian gas being made but for the most part you're just going to create a bunch of extra gas and diesel nobody wants to buy and you probably can't get it to market, because if you haven't noticed lately, we have a bit of a problem building pipelines
1: in this country. <laughs> You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900-CHML. Tristan
0: Hopper is with me now, National Post columnist. His most recent column is Why Canada Shouldn't Refine the Oil at Exports. Tristan, you point out in the column, and I just reading the, the, uh, the headline line of the, the section of the column, where you say Western Canada has built precisely one refinery since the 1970s, and it's kind of a boondoggle. What's the story?
4: Uh, That's right. Uh, It's actually 1980s. I got that wrong. I think there was one um, in 1984. But generally in Canada, uh, we close refineries. That's certainly what we've been doing since the 1980s. Our refinery capacity has actually gone up, so it's sort of like what's happening with newspapers. Uh, You just sort of close the small refineries and then consolidate the existing ones. Uh, but anyway, the only new one we built since the early 1980s was the Sturgeon Refinery uh, here in Alberta. So it's in you know if you're going to talk about building new refineries, you should probably look at the example of the Sturgeon Refinery uh, here in Alberta because it was built for similar reasons. It was uh, local politicians saying, "Well, we're you know value added is better than pulling it out of the ground." You know we. We, you know, politicians like the idea that we export finished product out of a blurb. So the Surgeon Refinery was uh, built, $9 billion refinery. It's 100% over its original cost. It was only supposed to be $4 billion. Now it's $9 billion. Uh, supported with huge amounts of government money. 75% of the bitumen it receives is free. The, uh, the Alberta government just gives it a bunch of bitumen uh, for free to turn into diesel. And then, um, so it's already twice over cost. And the day it opened um, last year, uh, Alberta was currently under a diesel glut. We had way too much diesel, and then suddenly there's this new refinery that uh, you know obviously was not needed at all. So uh, yes, I, I, I think i'm I'm pretty safe in calling it a boondoggle, and I think very few uh, Albertans would disagree with me. it's It's sort of something we like to laugh about here. So that's the peril uh, of this idea that it is better to have refineries and finished product. I mean, this this myth that a a, a more advanced country exports finished product you could end up with a $9 billion refinery supplied with free bitumen uh, that is doing nobody any good, which, you know, is worse for the environment than the alternative of just not building it.
0: Mm -hmm. Here's another uh, section of your column for the Premier of British Columbia. Good luck getting private investors to fund all these new refineries. Uh,
4: That's right. So it's not a great time uh, to build refineries in in Canada. So uh, once again, uh, we're sharing a border with the United States. where. They've got all the refinery capacity. If you ask the oil industry, they'll say, well, if you need something refined in North America, we've got enough sort of slowed down refineries that all we need to do is just find a way to get product to those and just sort of increase the capacity of existing refineries. Uh, so, of course, that's, you know, ag- again, uh, B.C. is pursuing this for environmental reasons. So, you know, reuse is better than recycle. And, you know, both of those are better than building a plant that no one needs. Uh, so we already have the existing refinery capacity to take care of all of our needs. Uh, we just need to maximize it. Uh, and then uh, you're you're going to see sort of peak oil consumption uh, happening around 2030, uh, if not sooner. So this is coming from oil companies. They're thinking we're probably going to reach a peak oil consumption as you shut down oil power plants, as you sort of shift towards renewables. Uh, so... Uh, a refinery is a pretty big investment. It could take up to 30, 40 years to pay off. Uh, now you're looking at a situation now where you build a refinery and then maybe it's got 10 good years uh, of earning money and then it's, uh, you know, t- 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 the, the next 20, 30 years, it's uh, looking, at, looking at a constricting petroleum market. So there's a variety of reasons why if you are invest an investor with $10 billion, there are so many other places you would put that rather than a refinery in Canada. I mean, the most optimistic assessment I could get for this, this is by the agency IHS Markets. They looked into does it make sense to build a refinery in Canada? And their conclusion was it could make sense in a very specific regional scenario, but even then there are incredible risks. So yet yeah, you have to imagine, again, ten billion dollars you want to invest it in oil, you'd be way better off putting that into pipelines or putting it into Chinese refineries or putting into it into oil extraction. It really does not make a lot of sense to do it privately, which is why um, when you hear a politician say we need to increase refinery capacity, that most likely means uh, heavily subsidized government propped up refinery capacity because it doesn't make any sense for the private sector.
0: Okay, I've heard the people who oppose refineries make the argument that they're too expensive for what the return is going to be. They make the argument that renewables are going to be uh, really dominant in the marketplace in the very near future, so why would somebody be spending billions and billions of dollars to build pipelines? But you just made the case for pipelines.
4: Uh, yeah, yeah. So they, I mean, that's, that's still got profit because there is still... Oil is an easier product to sell. Uh, that, that's one thing. I I'd never thought about it before I did the research. Uh, for this article, which uh, crude oil uh, it never goes bad, and everybody is looking to buy it uh, now. Refined products are a whole different ball game uh, because, uh, first of all, they go bad. Uh, anybody who has left their car for over a year and then finds that it doesn't start because the gas has gone stale knows that. Um, and uh, you don't know what the energy mix is going to be in a specific country. So, take the example of Japan. Japan has no domestic uh, oil extraction industry, but they refine all their own oil uh now japan uh maybe is going to have more diesel cars and gasoline cars and they know what share of it is going to be kerosene for jet fuel and whatever uh which is why it's just easier when they just go abroad buy the crude oil and then ship it back to the refineries and then you know make what is needed um you know the expiry dates are maximized because uh obviously the the product is being created right there so if in canada we're suddenly just creating a bunch of gasoline or diesel um it's harder to sell that because, you know, crude oil, everybody wants it at all times. It never goes bad. Uh, if there's an, uh, an economic slowdown like there was over the past few years, Alberta just stored it up. If we couldn't sell enough fuel, we were still keeping up our production and then just filling up every tank around the province. You can't do that with refined products as it goes bad. So, uh, yeah, that, that's one reason why it's easier and often, oftentimes more profitable just to stay, stay in the crude oil markets and why um, it's, Unreasonable to assume that for every barrel of crude oil we're selling, we could somehow also sell those people uh, a barrel of diesel or b- barrel of gasoline.
0: Tristan, thank you so much for the time. I hope you'll come back.
1: Anytime. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. And I was just
0: talking to uh, my good friend Scott Newark, and uh, he joins us now. Scott is former Alberta Crown Prosecutor, also the former Executive Director of the Canadian police association and served as a senior policy advisor to a federal public safety minister and now as an adjunct professor at Simon Fraser University. And uh, you said uh, it's a different world we live in. I was just thinking about that statement. You and I have been talking for about 25 years, and you've been uh, my go-to expert on the justice system for all that time. Everything I know about our justice system I've learned from you, and it's considerable Think I could pass a bar exam now, <laughs> but uh, it is a very, very, very different world. Uh, if we just look at the things that we talked about twenty-five years ago, we're still talking about some of them, uh, and some of them have made a return. But we weren't talking about these things, and here they are.
5: Yeah, I mean, it's uh, we we you you mentioned the uh, the attack in uh, Paris, uh, but you know, uh, there's also, and you look in the news today as well too. There's also uh, an attack that. Uh, has killed people in indonesia and people attack in afghanistan um... you know as i say this is uh... literally the new world that we are living in and it's the security reality of it and how as public authorities um... we address it and unlike the criminal justice system where you know traditionally success has been measured in uh, prosecution in the terrorism world it's measured in prevention and so that triggers a whole lot of other issues because You know, we don't want to give up that which makes us special, and that includes our civil rights and civil liberties. So there's a balancing of issues that's going on, and it's manifesting itself in in different kinds of cases because you're dealing with, you know, and what I find particularly alarming, uh, for example, about this uh, Toronto van attack, you're dealing with different motivations, uh, and it's not all just Islamist extremism, although that's obviously still the number one, Sort of uh, threat that's there as is the uh, uh, the case in the uh, the three incidents that i cited uh but these kinds of attacks on that which makes our you know western societies um free and what we in many ways take for granted are becoming a new reality
0: you know i was just thinking about something you said about a minute ago and you said success is not measured any longer in what was it
5: in in the criminal justice world, okay. su- success was traditionally measure- measured in prosecution. Right as now, as it's prevention. In the terrorism world, where it's measured in prevention. So,
0: are we doing the job that needs to be done, as far as prevention is concerned, by allowing our border to be penetrated by thousands and thousands of people, about whom we know nothing or almost nothing, and we're doing nothing about it or very little about it.
5: Well, it's, uh, I guess I'd put it this way. Different people will come to different conclusions about that. But I think what's the important thing to appreciate is that feature of the potential security risk that's involved in a situation like the one that you described in our border. That's a reality. And in fact, one of the things that I've learned over the years, uh, if you pay attention to the bad guys, to the Islamist extremists, they almost always tell you what it is that they plan on doing. They're so arrogant and so narcissistic. And in fact, um, years ago, they warned as this sort of mass migration was flooding out of the Middle East and North Africa into Europe, was that they were going to include their people, their terrorists, amongst those, uh, you know, uh, quotation marks, asylum seekers, as a way to get their people into Western societies. So. Without even necessarily coming to a specific judgment, it's a new lens that, in my opinion, must be brought to all of these different situations precisely because we are living in a different world.
0: I spoke with Joe Warmington yesterday, our mutual friend, yeah. uh, again about the borders and the fact that the uh, one of the central intelligence services in this country, CISC, has warned police services across Canada about the potential infiltration of Canada by MS-13. 70,000 members, the most violent street gang in the world. The the crimes they commit are just absolutely horrific. And what's to stop them from entering Canada? As Joel pointed out in his column and in our conversation, they already have a history in Toronto. And uh, the then chief, Bill Blair, who is now a senator, liberal senator, uh, warned that—
5: Liberal
0: cabinet minister. Is he? Yeah. Oh, no. He's a senator, isn't he? No. Bill Blair? No. Oh, Oh, well, he behaves like a senator. (laughs) (laughs) You should hear Scott and I talk when we're not on the air. (laughs) But, but, uh, okay, so cabinet minister Bill Blair uh, said that there had been a situation with MS-13 in Toronto where a justice official's life had been threatened, and they took that very seriously. So this is, again, an issue that we cannot ignore. MS-13 entering Canada, and the, the, uh, the warning is Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal would be their preferred areas. They get into those cities, everything changes.
5: Yeah, and, um, you know, you look at uh, what is going on in the United States, it is naive of us to think that, for example, if the Americans start cracking down on these people, many of whom are illegally in the United States, uh, that they're just going to wait to get uh, arrested. Uh, they may well decide to come north, mm-hmm. and even if it's to come north to hide out for a while before they go back south, okay, which will potentially also happen, that is a uh, a threat reality uh, for both of our countries. Which is why I think, and what I think, it should be the approach that our government is taking in saying to the Americans, "Look, it's time to number one renegotiate the safe third country agreement. It makes no sense." that it doesn't apply between ports of entry and second we've got to deliver on what was contained in the beyond the border agreement which is essentially a mobile uh, interdiction force between ports of entry to deal with exactly the kinds of situations you're describing because uh, if those circumstances evolve as i suspect they will in the united states you may not have the people crossing all at one uh, you know, location between a port of entry where they're walking over to the RCMP. They may start coming into places where they're not going to be detected. And we don't find out about it, usually, until after they commit crimes in Canada.
0: Yep. And, you know, it's interesting you talk about mobile uh, border crossings. or
5: Interdiction units, yeah.
0: That's, it. That's a big word. I, I can't handle that.
5: Two words.
0: Interdiction's two words?
5: Interdiction units.
0: Oh, but interdiction's one word.
5: Yes, but units is another one. And
0: Bill Blair Bill Blair's a cabinet minister. <laughs> so my point was, you sure he's a cabinet minister? My point was that Roxham Road, we hear all this talk about Roxham Road, and I know exactly where it is. Yep, so do I. Why would they not put a mobile border interdiction uh, thingy there to stop them from crossing into Canada. Uh, people say to me, You're inhuman, Green. You're saying stop people from entering Canada. And I say, Exactly what I'm saying. There are rules and regulations about entering this country, enforce them. Yeah. And, I mean- and it's not just the American Scott. We're responsible for our borders. Yeah, they have a responsibility to monitor who they're letting into, into our country. But ultimately, it's on us about what goes on at our borders
5: yeah and unfortunately uh, we uh, the Justice Department uh, I was involved in the original discussions with the Americans even uh, from my days in the Canadian Police Association about getting some kind of an agreement in place and the federal government took uh, over and the Justice Department somehow put in these exceptions that it didn't apply to be between ports of entry and it also didn't apply to non visa countries which no one has ever explained, you know, the rationale for.
0: So this was our government that insisted on this? Yes. I didn't know that.
5: Yes, and it was included. It's If you go and you check in the uh, the agreement and the regulations, uh, it's included in there. And no one has ever asked the question, like, you know, why did why? we uh, do that? Um, but, but to your point, though, I mean, even if we designated that particular crossing as a designated port of entry, which meant that the third country Act would apply they'd move a hundred yards down the road okay they the the professional industry of human smuggling which mm-hmm. definitely read Justin Trudeau's tweets okay have realized that there is a uh, an enormous loophole that they can exploit so as to gain entry to Canada and the other thing after that is that even if we um, make determinations that people aren't Uh, entitled to refugee status or that they're inadmissible on, you know, like grounds like criminality. Global News has done a fantastic job of reporting on that because, you know, there's a difference. This is Canada. There's a difference between being um, ordered deported and actually being removed. And it turns out, guess what, folks, of the people who've been determined that they aren't refugees, or that they're inadmissible, less than 1% have actually been removed.
0: Yeah, you and I have talked, Global Global does a terrific job on this. Yes. But we've been talking about this sort of thing going on forever. There was the Palestinian Liberation Organization terrorist who was involved in a hijacking of a plane in Greece where somebody who died. He came to Canada, lied about why he was here and who he was. He was ordered deported, but he ended up still owning and operating a, a variety store in Brantford, Ontario, for some 20 years before he yeah. was removed from the country. And,
5: Mohammed, Mohammed, Mohammed. Is That's in, right. Is in, That's uh, right. Yes. Yeah. Hey. Um, uh,
0: so l- let me ask you this, though. Um, is the Secretary General of the United Nations doing anything at all responsible... I'm sorry, Justin Trudeau, doing anything at all responsible on our borders?
5: Um, I don't think so. I, um, I think the... Uh, I mean, we're talking about this. Let me give you an example, and this is not just for Justin Trudeau. It's been going on forever. Um, the the need for the mobile uh, uh, border interdiction units. Mm-hmm. We've got, for example, the cross border enforcement agreement with the Americans called the Shiprider Program, where we're you know joined together on the border. You know who's not part of the uh, cross border enforcement program? The Canada Border Services Agency. <laughs> what? Like oh that doesn't make my. any sense. Uh, no, I don't think really that this government has uh, done what it, uh, it it should and could be doing, and I think what is happening as well too is as you're seeing this particular manifestation about all of the uh, what what are illegal crossers, and excuse me uh, to the justice minister, they're illegal, not irregular. Okay, read the legislation. Um, you're seeing the, the results of it, and what concerns me about that is that if we don't uh, Get proactive on some of these issues, including an enhanced lookout system for people who are trying to come to enter the country illegally. Um, you know, it's we're going to end up being reactive, and all too often, we, you know, recognize these people being here after they've committed crimes.
1: Yep. You're listening to the Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from two to five on 900 CHML.
0: Talking with Scott, former Alberta Crown prosecutor. Also the former executive director of the Canadian Police Association, senior policy advisor to a federal public safety minister, adjunct professor at SFU, and uh, was a national um, Canadian federal security advisor and to the province of Ontario. You've worn a lot of hats, my friend, and you still do. On this issue of Alec Manassian, let me ask you to put your prosecutor's hat on. Sure. Uh, I asked you this before a few weeks ago. I sent you an email one evening, and I because I was just sitting thinking, and I thought, for some reason not criminally responsible is going to be tried what do you think
5: um i think that is probably likely especially now that he is obviously lawyered up um the uh, it, it's an ironic situation when you think about it because um, i remember actually prosecuting some cases and and we're in a situation where literally the crime becomes the defense right in other words this crime is so horrific I, this person must have been crazy to do it um, this case i think they're going to have some difficulties because of the evidence that is obviously there uh... they've got some uh, clear evidence of pre-planning on this guy's part they've got evidence of uh, motivation uh... in the sense of the uh, the post that he made i presume they've also got evidence from the van rental company when you know they probably asked him what are you renting the van for i kind of doubt he said because i'm gonna go kill people um, there, is, there appears to be, obviously, the, uh, absolutely no doubt that he knew what he was doing. That's one of the basis for a not criminally responsible finding, or the other one that uh, uh, he didn't know that it was morally wrong. And I don't think the evidence is in any way going to support that. That doesn't mean, however, that, that his uh, lawyers and who's ever paying for them uh, are not going to make that argument, perhaps even starting with the one that he's not fit to stand trial. But I think the evidence is very strong. Uh, on this particular case, obviously because of the horrific facts of it, um, that uh, it's not going to be successful.
0: Now, the uh, individual who told the New York Times um, podcasters that he was an ISIS assassin, described how he killed, the smell of death. Now he's saying, no, I didn't really do it. I made that up. But that's what he said to the New York Times podcasters. He's living in Toronto. He says nobody's troubling him. It was brought up in Parliament by by uh, Mr. Bazan and by uh, Candace Bergen and the liberals are fighting back and uh, Mr. Trudeau saying, oh, you're trying to be divisive, it's the conservatives of 10 years ago. Well, that's got to do with anything only he knows. How do you read this one?
5: Uh, more questions than answers, frankly. Um, the, uh, and I've, I've done some digging around on a little bit uh, myself. Uh, the, uh, a couple of things right off the top. I mean, I have tons of questions that I would like to see uh, asked and answered on this. Um, and, and by the way, I think the uh, the new uh, National Security uh, Committee of Parliamentarians might be a great place to do it. It would all be uh, in camera, and they could ask the officials the very blunt and pragmatic questions to see exactly what happened and what hasn't happened here. But the other thing that, in, in particular, you got to remember is we discussed it before. Never forget the uh, the, doc, the Islamic doctrine of takia, which is it's okay to lie about everything. Okay, so you can't. Take anything that this guy says as being um, accurate in any way. And as you correctly pointed out, he's already contradicted himself like a half a dozen different times. But I think, I tell you, Roy, seriously, from my perspective, the thing that worries me the most about this case, and I had mentioned it, uh, I think I had told you, when I testified earlier this year on the new counterterrorism bill, C-59, I'd done some uh, review and evidence given by a deputy commissioner of the RCMP in charge of national security I found extremely alarming, because they were asking about, you know, the potential of returning jihadis. And his answer basically was, well, you know, uh, this is uh, difficult for us to deal with, because it only becomes an issue, you know, when we learn about it in the media. And I am thinking to myself, you know, like, what? You mean you don't already have an existing database of people who you believe to have left and have gone off and are fighting, you know, uh, have become part of ISIS or other... Islamist groups so that you're on the lookout for them. You're not working with CSIS and CBSA. Uh, and I mean, that's what I must admit I find a little concerning about the what has been reported on this so far, because it's not in, at all clear that, uh, that that took place or when exactly uh, they had their interactions with this guy. So lots of questions that need to be asked and very definitely need to be answered.
0: And this is probably not the only case, because we know that it was just two or three weeks ago that uh, Global News broke the story that uh, national authorities have warned that returning ISIS members could pose a chemical weapons threat. Yeah. Yeah, that's so this is all very serious business.
5: It, it really is, and nothing is ever going to be perfect. But you want to know, for example, in a guy like this, okay? Um,
0: I've got 10 he, seconds, buddy.
5: Okay, where did he come from? Who did he associate with? I mean, according to the latest thing that I saw, at 13, his parents sent him off to a madrasa in uh, in Pakistan. Really? Who are they? Have they got any other kids? Yeah. You need to, this this kinds of facts that you get, you need to ask those questions.
0: Scott Newark, thank you, as always. All
5: right, Roy. Thanks. The Roy Green Show, weekends from
1: 2 to 5 on 900 CHML.